Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson. Episode 197 for May 21st, 2009. Windows 7 Security. Security Now is brought to you by IWantToBeANerd.com. The Nerds on Site team of IT professionals is looking for nerds with all competencies and skills. Go to www.IWantToBeANerd.com and register for a nerds-only meeting today. And by GoToMeeting. Do more and travel less with GoToMeeting. Make your next meeting a GoToMeeting instead. For your free 30-day trial, visit GoToMeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the show that covers all things secure and insecure. We actually cover insecurity more than security. At privacy, too. Steve Gibson is here. He is the guru of security and privacy, the man who discovered spyware, coined the term, wrote the first anti-spyware program. He's also famous for Shields Up, still the world's best disk maintenance utility. And uh, he here is here every week talking about security issues, answering questions. Hey, Steve. Insecurity issues. As it you're, really you're is. Right. Security is boring. It's the insecurity that's exciting. Yes. And, uh, and trying to get there from here or here from there or so, somewhere. So this week, what insecurity will we be, will we be discussing? <laughs> the source of the world's greatest lack of security, Windows. Oh. We're going to talk about Windows 7 security. What they have done uh, since Vista uh, in their... Um, more now more than half-hearted attempt. I mean, I think they're wholly-hearted uh, to get Windows security cranked up. They're basically still trying to recover from years of really not giving a damn. And uh, now that they do, they're, they've got all this legacy problems. And so they're continuing to move forward. We're going to talk about the things in Windows 7 that Microsoft has, you know, deliberately continued to work on since the big changes that they made in Vista. I'm really liking 7, and I'm hoping, my sense is it's more secure, but I'm, I'm hoping that you will give it a uh, at least a qualified thumbs up. The short version is yes. Oh, whew. But we'll get the long version in a moment. I want, it, <laughs> oh, I want, well, I want details. Yeah, I want details. <laughs> That's also, why we have listeners. Also, I'm sure we have some news in errata from uh, the world of uh, security. Before we do that, would you mind if I briefly mentioned our friends at uh, Nerds on Site? I'll be sipping my coffee while you do that. How much coffee do you drink? I talked day? to them just yesterday. We did a little telecast, actually. With the, they're, they're out floating in some water somewhere, and they uh, set up a satellite link so that I could join them for an hour. And, uh, oh, that's neat. What did you, know, you talk about? And, and just basically sort of geek stuff. This is what I like about Nerds on Sight. I mean, there's, uh, they're unabashedly geeky, and yep. they love to talk about geek stuff. And uh, and so it's it's kind of hard to describe it. That's why we send you to I want to be a nerd dot com. That's this the place where you can learn about nerds on site. Nerds are independent contractors. You stay in business for yourself, but not by yourself. So you can focus on the stuff you love helping people with their IT, but not the burdens of running a business. Look, I've learned from creating our small business that it's really important when you're doing a business. If you're not into the idea of running business, that you have some help. 
Nerds on Site is a team of IT professionals. They're all over the world. Canada, U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, Bolivia, India. They help you get work. They help you tune up your competencies and skills. They have that University of Nerdology with uh, with 250 different courses, including systems architecture design, a Starro gateway, uh, lots of UTMs. In fact, software development. They have everything from on-site IT to desktop support and Soho and residential IT services. So you polish your skills. You learn from other nerds when you're on a job and you go, I don't, I need some help. You've got somebody you can call. They're looking for people with PC and Mac expertise, Cisco, Oracle, you name it, they need it. Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, product managers, sales, trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus, and more. Find out more by going to IWantToBeANerd.com and sign up for a special nerds-only meeting today. IWantToBeANerd.com. So when you meet with them, is it uh, is it like they're... The, the regular nerds? I mean, who is it that you're talking to? Um, what they do is, um, among other things, they pull their nerds together from all over the place from time to time and have conferences. Oh, see, that's so great. See, they're really so they're, they're focusing on professional development, I guess. Well, yes, and um, it, it, exactly. So they're doing training and tips and, oh, and, and so forth. And so this is the third time that I've spoken to them all via a teleconference just to sort of say hi and tell them what I'm working on or thinking about. And, uh, you know, they ask me questions. So it's a little interactive deal. And, uh, you know, they're just, they're neat people. So I just, uh, I have agreed to do that. Very good. Well, it's nice of you to do that. Yeah. So um, what's new in the the world of security? Well, the good news is it's been a surprisingly quiet week. Only one thing happened that of is of potentially substantial note it is of course with microsoft um, and that is that they've been informed of a defect in iis their main web server system um, in the web dav uh, protocol Uh, web dav is the technology that essentially uses http to to connect to and allow directories to be viewed and modified remotely. So, for example, it's it's a way, for example, that that people could edit the pages on remote servers. Um, the traditional way has been to use FTP, you know, file transfer protocol, where you'd you'd work on a page and then you'd FTP it up to the server in order to, in order to make it go live. WebDAV, um, for example, is what. Jungle Disk uses in it uses that protocol in order to to create folders on your local system that are actually you know files remotely located at Amazon in their S3 service. So it, it's a it's a useful and sort of increasingly popular protocol. Well, Microsoft it turns out has a Unicode parsing problem in their password handling for their WebDAV adjunct component to IIS, both 5.0, 5.1, and 6.0. Um, so that's a problem. Uh, there aren't, they don't know yet of any exploits to it, but uh, potentially this allows any web dev services that are exposed to be exploited, and it's not good. So I would imagine they'll have this fixed for the June patch because it's potentially really bad. I wanted to let any of our listeners know 
who do have WebDAV running, since it's running over the same port, as it runs over port 80, there's no, you can't just close the port. What you have to do is shut down that service and not use it. And that's Microsoft's recommended um, you know, workaround for, for this. I mean, this is bad. So I just want to make sure that our listeners who, who, who are using IIS, if we have any, um, who also have the WebDAV component actively used, since it's, it's available to anyone who has access to your web server, a, you know, a, a mistake in its password processing is bad. Uh, and so this is. I saw that Ball State University actually uh, fell prey to this on Monday. I Ooh, mean, so it's already. Yeah, it's out there. Okay. Uh, it says, uh, this is from the register. Hackers have wasted no time targeting a gaping hole in Microsoft's IIS server, according to administrators at Ball State University, who say that servers that use the program were breached on Monday. Uh, so as of uh, this morning, um, web accounts at Muncie, Indiana-based university remained inaccessible, and the service isn't expected to be restored till tomorrow the next day. So Yeah. Um, in fact, I think it was Monday that this was announced. Um, That's how I knew, fast I've known happens. about it for a couple of days, and I've been waiting for wow. this podcast to update our listeners. So, yeah, they people jumped on it immediately. You know, there's one that also is breaking this morning, and you probably didn't see it, um, but according to SecureMac, they issued a critical warning for an unpatched Java security vulnerability in OS X on the Macintosh, including, remember we talked last week about that half gigabyte Oh, update. the mega patch. Yeah, 13,000 files updated. Even in the mega patched Macs, mm. um, the vulnerability could be used to perform something they call a drive-by download, the ability to infect a computer by visiting a web page. The flaw allows malicious code to run commands with the permission of the current user. So uh, you have to say yes, apparently. But but uh, the Landon Fuller, who discovered this, is a little upset. He says, you know, they've they've known this exploit has been around, and they didn't patch it. So he Ooh. released. He said, "I got to release code Ooh. just to prove that it exists." Yep. It'll uh, get fixed now. It'll get fixed now. Yeah. Uh, he says the workaround is to disable the use of Java applets in your web browsers. On Imagine that. <laughs> yeah, and turn off mm-hmm. open. This is something that Apple does called open safe files after downloading, and I wish they'd put safe in big old quotes. <laughs> believed safe this is yeah because this is a this yeah. was a problem before with i think dashboard items just opening and running and installing uh you know presuming that they're safe and, and really that should be turned off on the mac it's a convenience but it's a bad idea so something to be aware of i didn't since we're going to cover windows security i didn't want, i didn't want anybody to think that we were biased Especially you, Leo. Yes. No one would think that you were a <laughs> Mac fanboy. Not now, because I'm telling oh. the truth. <laughs> I want everybody to know. Well, I had two other little uh, blurbs of errata. Um, I discovered the other day, uh, searching for a solution, uh, another little add-on for Firefox. I know from talking to a lot of the people in our news groups um, that many of them use Windows large fonts. Um, just because their screens are high resolution, the fonts end up being too small. Um, when I'm at Starbucks, I'm using this tablet, and the tablet has a lot of resolution relative to the screen size. It's a 1400 by 1050 Ooh, resolution. How, how big is the screen? It's a 12.1 diagonal screen. Oh, that's small. So you really I, have hot little dot pitch there. Yes, yeah. and what I was noticing is I was, you know... I've got old person eyes now, so even though I've got my left contact lens is focused for for reading close and my right one is focused for distance, 
um, so that I'm not having to do the whole reading glasses thing. Even so, when I, I was noticing that lots of websites um, and even Microsoft's MSDN help file stuff is really small. Well, so I, I thought, gee, you know, isn't is there like some way to in Firefox to change the font size? Well, first of all, Control plus and Control minus right. that zooms this uh, a site in and out, and, and you know zooms the text and leaves everything else the same, which is very nice. And Firefox even remembers, I noticed, what your zoom settings were per site. So when you go back to something where you've been before. It's the size you left it. Which I is use that awesome. all the time. Very nice. Yeah. Um, what's missing from Firefox 3 is a default zoom factor, which would be very nice. I, 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 I put in about colon config to bring up the private config page. And I got, I, I got a little prompt saying, are you sure you want to go there? You know, this is like for people who know what they're doing. Wind up your propeller. And I said, yes, I'm sure. And then I think I had an option not to be harassed with this extra little in- intercept every time. Yeah. And then I put in Z-O-O-M, and I found like five entries under the about colon config that were about zooming. But And like there was like what you, you had a list of zoom factors, minimum and maximum, some cool things, but no default. It's like, why not give me, you know, a default entry which would default it to a like 1.0 meaning 100% and then I could change it but no so it turns out naturally there's an add-on it's called no squint <laughs> not no script no squint no, exactly i love it it's no squint no s q u i n t so i wanted to share that with our uh users our listeners who are also maybe you know 40 plus age uh, and who are finding themselves squinting. So, this so does, it still zooms, but it jumps to like a zoom that you like. Well, it does idea? even more. You are able, it's got, it's got both this notion of zooming the whole page versus zooming the text. See, I like but, that. I, Safari does that. And for, well, for TV, for what we do, it's great because the pictures get bigger too. Right. So you don't lose and, formatting. You just kind of are so zooming have, in. Right. So you have, you have independent control of those two factors and... What Firefox 3 doesn't offer is a default. Right. So I set mine to 130 to 130%. And so now it's just the size I want. So I wanted to notify users. I found our, 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 our listeners that I found something else that's cool. No squint for Firefox 3. Now, do you still do uh, Control Plus or? Um, I haven't had to. Oh, it just um, does every page 130. Yes. Ah. Uh, although then it, it will also do the per site exceptions and so it'll be it's able to memorize anything that you do aside from that that looks great so it's just you know for me it's just what i want and i thought hey cool i'm going to share that with people the other thing there was a i've had a huge tremendously positive reaction um to the little um cat mouse utility (laughs) the thing that 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 that's the thing that allows your mouse's scroll wheel to scroll whatever you're over even without having to click on it to make it the active window. And, I mean, an amazing amount of mail came back saying, my goodness, I really like this. Well, I wanted to tell people about a mouse which works really well with this. And actually, it's, it's, the, it's the whole family of Logitech mice that have, and I don't know how they do this, a virtually zero-friction mouse wheel Ooh. so that you can spin Ooh, this yeah. wheel 
it's With got, your finger. Yeah, I, I think it has um, it has a it has like a, a clutch, right? Well, it's got two modes. You when you push it in, it goes into like a de, the, the traditional kind right. of click 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 detent mode. But if you push it again, it, it, it like toggles back and forth. It it puts it in this zero friction mode. I mean, this thing really spins so that now you're able just to kind of give it a flick. And like literally zoom, I mean, like, you know, scroll all the way to the top or all the way to the bottom. But I'm noticing that it works well enough. You can spin it like the speed you want. And then as soon as you get to where you you want to be, you just put your finger down on it and it's, it freezes the window. Which which and, mouse is this? Logitech mouse is this? Well, I'm actually using their Nano VX, which is. Oh, uh, yeah, I have a, that. I love that mouse. That's my it's the it's mouse a, I'm it's using. A, it's designed for laptops. Yes, there's a mouse I'm using at Starbucks. It's got a little tiny, I mean, a super tiny little transmitter that's literally, it's the size of the USB plug with a little tiny head on the top of it. Just I was enough so sad because I lost my transmitter. Ooh. <laughs> it's this small. You could eat it. Well, in fact, I think, you know, me, me I'm a, sort of a battery fanatic. So when you put it back into the mouse, it stores inside the battery compartment of the mouse. And of course, in the process of plugging it in to like returning it to its storage position, it disconnects the battery so that your mouse is turned off. But I think they they think in terms of like, you know, leaving it sitting there in your laptop all the time. It barely protrudes. Yes, and you and the mouse knows when it's not being moved and it goes into an idle mode anyway. Do you prefer uh, that to the to uh, using Bluetooth for me? I I do. Bluetooth seems to drop out, and it's just. I weird. agree. I've not had success with Bluetooth yeah. to the degree that I have with this thing, but they do. I can't remember. They have a they have a trademark name for this style of wheel, and many of their mice there uh, they don't have a Bluetooth mouse with this, but they have a whole a whole range of like larger desktop mice as well that have this same zero friction wheel and i tell you when you combine that with the cat mouse you know just you know hover scroll thing it's just a it's a hot setup so i just wanted to pass it on to our to our listeners as get. something that i there found you. i think this is that this nano vx is good for these uh uh netbooks because they, they they really have lousy trackpads well they, they don't have room for a right. full-size so trackpad. You, you almost need a mouse and something this small it's perfect it's just right for it yeah, I like it. Yeah. And uh, it, it, in fact, I'm seriously, I mean, I'm liking the wheel so much. I've got the big Microsoft ergonomic mouse under my hand, on my right hand right now. But it's got, you know, the traditional sort of stiff wheel. And I'm seriously, con- you know, considering moving over to um, a, a Logitech mouse just to have this zero friction wheel. Because it's just, you literally, you just kind of give it a kick and it zooms up. Yeah. And then when, when you see where you want to be, you just, you know, stop the wheel and the, and the, the, the scrolling stops. It's like a fishing pole. Let you jump. Yeah, exactly. Love that. Yeah. And uh, we did get a really nice note from a listener, um, Mac Morris, um, who said, uh, who wanted to share a Spinrite testimonial, which he named as such. He said, I recently downloaded Spinrite 6 to fix a hard drive at my workplace. The hard drive would attempt to boot and then give the famous blue screen. I ran Spinrite and received a clean bill of health. Mm. However, the clean bill of health led me to the real problem, which was a corrupt Windows installation. So it wasn't a problem with his drive at all. He says, though, after repairing the installation, all was well. Well, my boss decided not to let Spinrite go to waste. I have since used it to successfully recover two dead hard drives and have two more on which to run it. 
I think we need new hardware, he says. Thank you for such a great product, and thank you and Leo for Security Now. I hope to catch up on the episode soon. Luckily, the CD player in my car plays MP3 files. <laughs> well, you'll be able to catch up. Just take long drives in the country every once exactly. in a while. Exactly. Listen to all the shows. All right, we're going to get to Windows 7 security issues. I think this is a great topic. I'm dying to hear this. I'm, I've been saying, and I, and I hope that you're not going to prove me wrong, that this is the best version of Windows ever. No. Uh, well, okay. Uh, we'll see. <laughs> I'm, 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 you know, I know that you know, there's, there's uh, you know, qualifications, caveats, and so forth. But uh, I, I, this, think I, don't, for, I don't have for, your depth of knowledge on the security side, so that's what I really want. For the typical user, I think it is the case. I'm yeah. not going to contradict you. Wow. But I'm not going to go there for a year either. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I understand that. You, this is a guy who was using Windows 2000 for the last eight years. My XP installation is still fresh. <laughs> Let's talk about uh, GoToMeeting. Speaking of security, there's nothing better than GoToMeeting for protecting yourself when you're having online meetings. All the Citrix products are secure. They've never been breached. That's because they use state-of-the-art, Industry-wide SSL encryption. Everybody, you know, we know about it. TLS works. Uh, they use them, of course, the latest version of TLS. Go to meeting. Look, we all have people we've got to meet with uh, in our jobs. The last thing you want to do is jump in your car and drive two hours, unless you have some Security Now podcasts to listen to. Maybe you'd want to do that. Uh, I've done that. I've flown across the country for an hour meeting. I have driven across town for a 10-minute meeting. Nowadays, with the costs of travel, with the stress involved in travel, Go to meeting just makes sense. It, it'll save you money. It'll save you stress. It'll save you time. And here's the thing. It makes a meeting more engaging, more interesting. You know, people prefer it. Even clients. You know, you got to understand, if you're doing sales, you can't make your clients jump through hoops to meet with you. So go to meeting. It makes it very easy. You could do it on the fly. You can be on the phone. By the way, this includes free teleconferencing voice or voice over IP. You're on the phone with your client. And you say, ah, look, I got to show you that you don't have to say I have a presentation. Don't mention the PowerPoint word. Just say, I've got to show you this. This is incredible. You're going to believe this is what we could do for you. Or you the drawings or you could be collaborating or even doing training. You say, go to go to meeting.com. Here's the meeting ID. Ray, not, Ray Maxwell and I do that all the time. He'll he'll send me the email. I won't be able to find the email. So he says, well, here's the meeting ID. It's a nine digit number. He, he actually puts it on a card and holds it up. And I type it in and boom, I'm seeing his screen on my desktop. I see his pointer. It's nice and big, easy to read. We can even even trade control. He could say, okay, you try it, or we can go to my system. I want you to try it free for 30 days. A 30-day trial will give you an idea of what you could do with GoToMeeting. It's very simple. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now, right now. A couple of clicks of the mouse, you'll have it installed. And then you've got 30 days to try it, as many meetings as you want, as often as you want. That's the other side of this. By the way, it's a very affordable. 49 bucks a month, you can meet as often as you want, as long as you want. And you compare that to anybody else, you'll see what a bargain that is. Go to meeting.com slash security now. Give it a try. I think you're going to like it. I use it. We use it all the time. In fact, we ended up getting accounts for, uh, I'll get one for you too, Steve, if you want, for a lot of our hosts. Um, Dick D. Bartolo has been using it to work on his website. Ray Maxwell uses it to show screens. If you ever want to show screens on the show, Steve, I know when we did the TV show, you really loved to put up those screens, those illustrations. If you ever wanted to do that, we could set that up for you too. Go cool. to meeting.com slash Security now. Yeah, we haven't done that. Uh, you know, you used to do that on the TV show, the drawing. Well, it's because this is an audio podcast. True. Oh, you're right. What am I thinking? <laughs> we would have to. Des- we'd, we'd have to describe it. 
Now Steve is drawing a line. <laughs> yeah, you're. you're oh, what am what I thinking? a nice looking square. He's just <laughs> what am I thinking? Of course. <laughs> so let's talk about. I am. I am excited about this conversation. Windows Seven security. Now remember Vista. They said we're going to rewrite everything from scratch, and you were very worried that TCP stack brand new. Well, yeah, and and Vista had fewer problems than XP. Remember that it added kernel patch protection, right. where it was it was you know not going to allow things to go hook the kernel, which was controversial because you know many third party products did rely on patching the kernel in order to function. Uh, it hardened services and drivers by requiring requiring that they be signed, which was arguably a good thing. Uh, worked more for data execution prevention, DEP. Uh, also offered address space layout randomization, ASLR, where it would deliberately load the various subcomponents of Windows at, at random locations in order to make it harder for malware to jump to a specific location in the kernel, which was one of the, the approaches that malware depends upon. Uh, for example, as part of a... Um, an exploit using a buffer overrun, you would jump into some place in the code that just happened to execute a few instructions and had a side effect of, for example, turning off user account control or something. So they, they, they did a lot in order to to improve the security when they went to Vista. Now, of course, they'd also, uh, talking about user account control, which was very controversial, they they arguably maybe went too far. I think we could we can now say clearly and confidently that they did because they have backed away from some of the annoyance factor. But the good news is they really they they've, they've done so in a way that is some reengineering rather than just turning things off, so that they really haven't backed out of the security that they were offering. So what Windows Seven offers running through the list brief, and then we'll go back and look at it in depth, is something called a biometric framework, uh, which is currently only supporting fingerprint readers, but it offers some good features. They've extended authentication protocols uh, for small networks. Uh, they've improved BitLocker so that it may actually be useful. Uh, they've added BitLocker support for removable drives, Um They've really made some changes to user account control. There's something new called AppLocker. They've fixed firewall policies to make them better. They've got DNSSEC, that is DNS security support in the client. They've fixed autoplay so that it defaults in the right way. And they've got something called Direct Connect that works uh, with their built-in VPN client stuff. So a bunch of things which they have... They've they've basically gone into they've they've looked at I would sort of call this you know like major improvements to mostly major improvements to the security to the existing functions in Vista. This is like you know Rev two you know round two. We're we're gonna they they took all the feedback and problems people had and in many cases did some real reengineering of it. Now one thing that's new that I said talk, that I talked about first was the so called biometric framework they call it wbf windows biometric framework um it's in response to the fact that an increasing number 
of machines, pr- probably prim- primarily, principally laptops, have built-in fingerprint readers. I know that both of my ThinkPads do, as does the, this new tablet that I got. All have fingerprint readers. Um, under XP, which is what I'm using, it's necessary for the vendor to to basically bring along a whole a whole collection of of add-ons to to make the fingerprint reader work. And in fact, one of the problems I had, remember what we talked a while ago that I had uh, my, my two employees, Sue and Greg were out roaming around right. and wanting to get secure access to the GRC network. I ended up uh, um, doing the whole perfect paper passwords technology to create a paper-based one-time password system that would allow them to do that securely but that was only after a great deal of frustration trying to figure out how to how I could write an application to use the fingerprint reader that we all already had in our laptops. Because I set them both up with these nice um, IBM Lenovo ThinkPads, all with fingerprint readers, yet there's no API, no application programming interface that would allow me in any way to say swipe your finger on the on the reader uh, now hmm. even though i'm running swipe it again to prove that this is really you at the keyboard right well we get that in windows 7 oh. so but so that's, what, what, you know that was kind of inevitable right i mean that's that's been these biometrics have been built at the machines for a while now yes I mean, and so microsoft is responding finally, so yeah. so well and what it also means is that the that that we'll see, you know, shareware and freeware applications using the fingerprint in different ways. I mean, I'm, as we know, I'm a fan of the YubiKey. Um, it offers the ability to, you know, it, 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 it's different because it allows you to authenticate yourself wherever you are. Inherently, you're authenticating your fingerprint to your own machine. Um, on the other hand, you've always got your fingers with you, hopefully. <laughs> Um, so, so that's convenient. So what this does is that this essentially turns the fingerprint reader from, from a proprietary device only supported by, you know, manufacturer specific drivers and like some third party glue that like, for example, Lenovo provides their own, their own third party stuff. And it keeps it very closed. This opens it up. And I think we'll end up seeing lots of, you know, good use for it. For example, you know, my own forthcoming VPN will certainly leverage that API when it's available as one of the many means that it will have for authenticating. So, you know, when you want to create a connection, it'll say, okay, you, you've told the server that, that you want to make yourself swipe the fingerprint right now. So do that right now. Prove that it's you making, you know, who is doing this. And so that's going to be, you know, that that's a nice step forward. That's, you know, I consider that a good thing. And I think we're going to be seeing then, as a consequence, much more use of of this kind of inexpensive, pervasive biometrics um, where it's available. Also, because Microsoft has carefully engineered this with security in mind, um, we noted and we've talked about how, for example, that a problem with biometrics is that unlike, for example, a password, you can't change your fingerprint. The fact that you can't change it means you don't want it to get away from you. It's one of the reasons that, you know, that we've had 
um, listeners write in during our Q&As saying that they object to Disneyland Florida using their fingerprint as, you know, getting into the turnstile at Disneyland. It's like, uh, no, I'm not, you know, this is where you give them your knuckle instead um, because you want to keep you, you want to keep control of your fingerprint. So one of the things that that the Windows biometric framework does is it encapsulates that knowledge and prevents any application from having access to the fingerprint. You, it gets a token that represents you, but but absolutely cannot access that biometric information, which you know you really want to protect because you know that's you know it's something about you that you can't change. So that's new in Windows 7, and that's 100% good news. Yeah. I, I mean, as long as they didn't screw it up somehow. I mean, it certainly represents a nice move forward for security and something I'm glad to see. I mean, I will absolutely take advantage of it. Are, um, they, are they tying it into TPM or any of the hardware uh, Oh, yeah, stuff? yeah. It, it's absolutely based on the Trusted Platform module to, to do authentication and storage of stuff. I mean, as is, for example, the... For example, in, in the ThinkPad and even in my tablet, all of these things do use the TPM, but there isn't a there isn't a application available API. Just adding that hugely opens this up to 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 the ability, you know, for for, you know, all kinds of applications to say, hey, uh, let's have you reauthenticate right now before we proceed. Oh, in fact, User account control can be tied to the fingerprint reader now. So, for example, in a in a home environment, the kids would be running as a limited user, and you can you can then put parental controls on things which are tied to the fingerprint reader. So that in order to you know in order to do something, the box comes up, and you know um, the the kids have to say, "Hey, mom, uh, can you come here for a second? I need permission to whatever it is. You know, charge." a micro payment on your credit card or something <laughs> mom comes over scans her finger oh, that's and neat. bing it that's works that's good i like that so yeah they, they, we're going to see this is just like you know lots of good move forward um traditionally in a home network uh you log on to your own machine or if you're doing file sharing and you're and you you have different credentials on another machine you have to you you put the, your those credentials in in order to map a network drive. Microsoft has done something uh, that they call extending the authentication protocols with what they call home group authentication. And with home group authentication, essentially, it's a little bit like sort of a mini enterprise. You know, when, when in an enterprise, you authenticate to the domain. And so that allows an individual to be in various parts of the enterprise. And when they authenticate on, 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 a, on a machine where they happen to be, they're authenticating against their credentials that are stored on the domain controller. Well, Microsoft has sort of juniorized that and created this notion of a home group authentication, where the idea being that it cre- essentially creates peer-level authentication providers that will allow you in a home network environment to to authenticate against another machine on the network, which is a whole new level of of sort of flexibility for what home networks are doing. And I don't really have a good sense yet for how that will be applied, 
but um, it, it's I'm glad that that foundation is there because it makes sense um, in a home network environment. I'm you know I'm the only one in my home, so I, I've got credentials synchronized among my different machines, and so you know connecting to them is is, is transparent. Um, really, in, in in a in a more um, in a more heterogeneous environment where you've got different logon users and and passwords on all the different machines um, in the environment, it'd be nice to have you know to be able to authenticate as mom or dad on your kid's machine, depending upon how you wanted to set up you know file sharing and media sharing and so forth. So we get that now. BitLocker. I've never been impressed, and many people have never been impressed with BitLocker, only because, um, unlike TrueCrypt, that I, I am very impressed with, BitLocker has traditionally been a big pain to set up. Because, as we'll remember from our podcast on BitLocker, you need to create a separate system partition, separate from the, the, the main system partition that is to say that you know microsoft didn't do like a a, the sort of boot sector um intercept approach that truecrypt took where you're able to just do an in-place encryption of of the whole drive and add that after the fact and so the problem with vista was that you know vista came with the whole drive partitioned as the c partition and the problem is you couldn't just say, oh, I want to add BitLocker to this because it needed repartitioning. And sure, you could use some third-party tools to do that, but that was enough of a barrier that lots of people didn't. So two main changes to BitLocker in Windows 7. The first is that Windows 7 setup itself by default creates a separate active system partition. So it sets itself up so that it is ready to have bit to be bitlockerized if you decide you want to do that. And if if um if you are upgrading to from Vista into 7, of course you wouldn't have set you wouldn't be running Windows setup from scratch on an empty drive. The whole drive would already be a C partition. So Microsoft has taken responsibility for uh, essentially allowing you to retrofit the BitLocker-required partitioning into any non-pre-partitioned drive. That is, literally, it comes up with a dialog, and it, it shows you shrinking drive C, which is what's necessary in order to create some empty space where it can set up its separate active system partition. So that means that you are, for the first time, able to, without using any third-party repartitioning tools and, you know, the, the, the potential concern of, like, okay, well, you know, which one do I use? How do I do it? How much space do I need? And all that. Um, you're able to just tell in Windows 7, you're able to tell BitLocker, okay, I want you to install on this drive, even though it's not ready for you. So BitLocker will shrink the partition, create the new system drive, um, set itself up and then and then prepare to encrypt the the whole drive, which is you know very cool. And of course, the the flip side of the uh, the the overhead 
that this represents is that you end up with an arguably much more capable authentication environment. For example, I wish that I could use biometrics to authenticate with TrueCrypt, or I wish that I could use my YubiKey to authenticate with TrueCrypt. TrueCrypt right now only allows you to enter a password. And so the advantage of of the more heavyweight Microsoft approach is you've got a Windows system there running. So you can take advantage of much more powerful authentication technologies in order to say, you know, for example, fingerprint reading in order to say, yes, this is me, um, unlock my bit, my, um, my bit locker partition. Then the next thing that they did is that they call bit locker to go, which, you know, short version is it's bit locker for removable drives, which is very cool. Um, one of the things that they have done that I'm, I think is really a tremendous improvement is there is when they added BitLocker to Go, meaning that you had BitLocker for, you know, you had, you had encryption of removable drives, meaning uh, USB solid state drives or removable hard drives. Um, they said, okay, we're going to enforce that. So there is now for the, for the corporate environment, a group policy setting that says any removable drive is read only unless it is encrypted oh, with BitLock. That's great. Yes. So now they they did have to do a little bit of a kludge in order to retrofit this into FAT file systems because of course most removable drives. In fact, I don't think I've ever seen one that came pre-formatted as NTFS because. Of course, you know, you don't have compatibility uh, the, exactly compatibility issues across Mac and Linux and, and, uh, and other OSs, whereas they all support the fat file system without any problem. So so Microsoft had, has this weird sort of virtualization overlay that they create on top of the fat file system. They realized that's not a problem because only they and BitLocker can read it. So they were able to sort of kludge up the the architecture of the fat file system. Um, they the other thing that they had to do was they said, well, okay, we're doing BitLocker to go in Windows Seven, but we can't get away with only having Windows Seven work with these things. Th- that is at least being able to read them. We need a solution for XP and Vista. So they do have, when you set this up, there is a reader which is installed on, on that removable drive, which both XP and Vista are able to invoke in, in, in order to have access to the FAT file system. So it creates a sort of a little, uh, um, a, a little decryption system, which is XP and Vista compatible so that so that the drive that you create under Windows 7 with BitLocker to go can be read by XP and Vista. So, you know, it, it, it's a nice solution. They also have in, in existing BitLocker systems, every single volume you created needed a different recovery key. And they've, they realized that was too burdensome for keeping track of all this. So it is now possible for example, in in a, in an I, in a corporate IT environment, to have a single recovery, a single master recovery key 
that will work across all the BitLocker drives in the organization, which makes doing um, data recovery. They have something called the data recovery agent in Windows 7, which they actually they, they got this technology from EFS, their encrypted file system, um, and 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 set that up. So um, um, uh, they've essentially they they've made this portable in a way that's useful um, and. Um, I, I think this solves a lot of problems. And as, as you said, this group policy enforcement, the fact that they're able to say drive, removable drives you plug in are read-only unless they're encrypted, you know, that's, again, that's a major step forward uh, for, for Windows 7 and, you know, long-term security you, enhancement. You could disable that. Yes. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. It, it's, it good, a, it's the right default behavior. Um, yes. And it is not the case... Normally, so it would be something that you know corporate IT would say we're enforcing this, so that you know you can plug drives in, you know your 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 thumb drives without encryption, and you can read from them, but you can't write anything to them. Right. Um, well, speaking of that, the other thing that they did, yay, is <laughs> auto is autoplay. Autoplay uh, yeah, is now problem. Yes, is now disabled by default on everything except um removable optical drives that is to say cds and dvds this is in response to configure basically yes essentially yeah um uh well and in general um microsoft actually did a study which showed i think it was 17 percent of viruses yes 17.7 percent of of malware was propagating through auto run. Wow. And so, you know, they said, okay, <laughs> this is wrong. Let's turn that off. Right. So that's another um, improvement. Um, so CDs and DVDs by default will still launch when you install them, but no other removable drives will. You, you won't get, you don't even get the pop-up that prompts you for what action to take because users tend to take the wrong action. Right. It's just silent. It's like, nope, we're not going to have that. That does mean, though, that simulators of CDs and DVDs like U3, they do still work. Mm. They look like a CD, you know, like like a removable optical drive in order, specifically, in order to get that autoplay functionality. And so those will still work. That's too um, bad. But I guess that's... Yeah. But, but again, security conscious users can disable that themselves. Right. So, you know, that won't be hard to, to fix either. Um, user account control. This is, of course, the very controversial pop-up, which uh, has been the bane of Vista users for so long. Um, several things have happened. The good news is that user account control was such a problem that a great deal of pressure was put back on application writers to make it work right. For example, I remember when I wrote Securable, um, I thought, okay, I want to make Securable work correctly with Vista. So there is a means for an application to declare its need for for administrative privileges right up front, right in, in the loader, essentially, so that Microsoft asks you preemptively, hey, this program wants administrative rights. Do you want to allow that? 
um, and then you're able to to give it to the program and never be harassed later, like downstream when, when you're doing specific things that require the rights. You know, most applications traditionally, well, first of all, this didn't exist before Vista. So, of course, no applications were doing it then. Right. So it would be when the application, you know, stepped into a directory or tried to touch the registry or did these things that you'd get the pop ups. And so the problem was you could get them all over the place in a single application rather than just permitting it once. So what happened was or where what has happened over this span of time from the time that that Vista happened until Windows 7 is threatening to happen is that that put back pressure on application writers to make their applications quieter and or to to make them run as a standard user as we know traditionally because this whole notion of running as a non admin you know a non super user is is relatively new certainly it wasn't new in the unix world but you know there wasn't any concept of it in, for for you know a decade of of windows use um so as we as security advice began to be don't run as the admin user people were saying yeah but it's a pain in the butt not to run as admin because nothing works i mean all you know my applications are like causing all these problems so so in addition, what's happened is, you know, this migration away from running as admin has also put pressure on on developers not to assume admin privileges, you know, only only require them if it's really necessary. And typically it's just the installer. It's just the setup process that, that needs to to put something on the machine, install device drivers, you know, have, have access to privileged directories or the registry during setup and install. And after that, um, you don't need that so much. So, so, so one of the changes that's happened is just natural. And that is, you know, these sorts of this evolution in security policy toward being more secure is never painless. And so we've seen some pain over time that's been getting better because applications are evolving not to assume that they're going to have admin privileges um okay but microsoft also responded and they 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 made some major changes two real major changes to the way uac works um one is that that prompting for standard admin tasks has been removed Things like changing the screen resolution. I mean, Vista used to require you to say, yes, <laughs> it's really me wanting to change yeah, my, that my color silly. depth. Yeah. Okay. That's just dumb. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and so, so that they've removed. Um, the other thing is that they've, they've better aggregated the, the way things trip user account control so, for example, um, when you were installing an add-in, uh, an add-on in IE, for example, the you would there would be an initial prompt when something tried to sort of look like it was about to do it. Then you'd say yes, and then when when the add-in then tried to do something for itself to install, you'd get another one 
because you'd get blocked again by based on the add-ins behavior. So what Microsoft did was they said, okay, this is really annoying for people. Let's create sort of a, a, an encapsulation of that. That is, we'll recognize when something is going to install. One of, one of the other problems was that some of these, many actually, of these user account control pop-ups didn't give you much information at all. It said, you know, you want to install this add-on. Well, okay, I'm trusting the site that I'm going to that's telling me I need this add-on to be installed, but I'd really like to know more about the add-on because, you know, I'm not sure how much I trust this site. Can't you tell me more? Well, the original architecture didn't have any more information. The new architecture does so that this the, 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 the process that presents you with the permission query reaches into the ActiveX control that you're trying to install, extracts its name, publisher, and so forth, and presents that to you, and then permits it to do, given that you have said yes, of course, permits it to do whatever it wants to do. So you're not getting multiple successive pop-ups after you've said, yes, I want to install this. It's, you know, yes, I'm you're, essentially you're saying, I want to install it, and you've told me enough that I'm going to trust everything that it does while it installs, and that's the decision I've made. Don't keep bugging me about this. <laughs> so, so that's been fixed. Good. Um, and Microsoft is trusting themselves. Uh, that is their their own code, which is making changes. They trust. They don't trust foreign code. Um, and of course, that's the activity that you want. Now, they of course made one famous screw up, um, and that is they they. One of the pop-ups that they decided not to have require user account control was user account control <laughs> itself. Right. Where, where well, a couple of clever guys figured out that we could use the send keys technology to essentially pretend to be the user turning off user account control. And the act of turning off user account control would not ask you for permission. Because Microsoft just deadened all of those permission queries, including that one. So they said, whoops, uh, good point. It's interesting, too, because their initial reaction was, no, that's by design. Go away. And then they started to actually listen to what people were saying. And they said, oh, yeah, that's a good point. Maybe we ought to ask for permission if we're going to be turning off all asking for permission. Um, So there's now a slider, a four-level slider in Windows 7. Um, where the default setting is level three, well, one, two, three, and four. Level three is not quite as onerous as level four. Level four is essentially the same as we had in Vista. That is, you know, you're notified when programs install software or make changes or change Windows settings. You're notified. And you are rep- you are required to reply. So um, so that's pretty much the same as, as as what we had in Vista. Three level three gives you the notification, but you're not you're not being forced to respond. It's just sort of a notification, and then it's like okay, fine. We want to let we wanted to let you know that this is going on, but we're going to move on. Level two is. A little bit of a concern, but a little bit less visually jarring. You know, as we know, 
Every time user account control comes up, the whole screen behind it goes dark, and it's it's sort of the only thing illuminated. Well, this is actually a different desktop. It's a security enforcement desktop, which prevents any software that's running in the normal environment from being able to see and reach into the user account control dialog. So this darkening of the desktop is a visual metaphor for something that's actually happening in the architecture. Normally, and this has been a, is a fundamental security problem with Windows, different windows running on the same desktop are able to see each other. They can enumerate them. They can get all their names. They can send them keystrokes. And, you know, that's how macro programs work. A macro program is sending keystrokes to another window, which is emulating what the user's typing. Well, you wouldn't want to emulate user account control receiving the click of OK mm. for, for permission. Right. So this darkening of the desktop is a security feature that is creating an isolated environment for the user account control dialog to pop up. But it turns out that some video drivers are very bad about implementing this switchover. Some of them blank off completely for a while Ugh. and then click back on. I've which seen is, those. It's really annoying. Yeah, it's really annoying. So what Microsoft, again, trying to respond to this, created level two, which is not as secure because it does not invoke the secure desktop, but it's way less visually disturbing. So the, the, the user account control dialog will come up, leaving it, you know, it's on the same dialog. So there's the concern about, okay, something bad could, could click on the buttons. On the other hand, and this is a point that I'm going to bring up here in a second, by that time, it's too late. And it is to say, you've already got something on your computer if it's able to click the button. So you could argue, okay, well, you know, if we're compromised, we're compromised. And level one, lastly, does nothing at all. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you go to level one, it will warn you that you're about to disable user account control and you're going to have to reboot your machine because, you know, we've wired this all in so deep that we can't turn it off on the fly, you know, like maging, m making major intrinsic uh, changes to Windows settings. So, so you know, that's the... Um, uh, the way those four settings lay out. So the point I want to make, and and I know, I, I mean, I've heard you say this, Leo, on other podcasts and on the Tech Guy um, uh, radio show, that by the time your computer is is infected, it's too late. And and it's a funny concept. The people have a hard time grasping, but I, well, we've I, been trained that you know antiviruses can remove this stuff for years, right? Right, and of course, that's there's still the hope that that can happen. But we know that with the with the growth of rootkit technology, I mean, basically, malware has gotten much worse. Yeah. In terms of what it does to your system once it gets in, it's not just oh look, it's in the startup group. Let's take it out, or it's you know it's in my 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 run key in my registry. I mean it, that's just none of that stuff uh, is the case anymore. So so the point I wanted to make though, I wanted to. I mean you're you're exactly right when you say that, and and I'm I'm I've been sort of trying to figure out how to make a really clear distinction. The idea is that if you, you know, 
if you've got a, a castle with a moat um, and, a, and a drawbridge that's up and high walls, the idea is that, that there really is, a, there really is a, a useful function to keeping things out. That is, inside the castle walls, you can have all kinds of secrets and you can be doing anything that you want to. And the moat and the walls keep the bad things out. And there's a, there's a, a fundamental change when those walls are porous, the moat is filled in, the drawbridge is down, whatever. When something is able to get in, now it's on the inside. Well, I mean, that's, I guess the point I want to make is everything changes at that point. You know, we're, you know, we're, we're hardening windows to be better at this. We're trying to keep things out. So user account control is, you know, trying to make users more aware of typically the things that they do, but it also could just be, you know, drive by websites. You go to a website that is trying to, for example, run Java in order to install something on your computer. Well, if your computer never told you when something was being installed, then you're in trouble. But if, it, if the computer is able to say, wait a minute, something is trying to install itself. Do you want to, you know, to allow this to happen? It's very much like, you know, you've got a door through your castle wall and someone's knocking on it. And it's like, you know, someone's knocking on the door. Are you going to open it and you know, allow whatever happens to happen. But, but I guess the point is that, that it, it seems to be a difficult concept for people to grasp that having the bad stuff outside the castle is just fine as long as you don't let it in. Once you do let it in, really, the jig is up. I mean, you, you, Windows is trying to be hardened against ever letting it get in. But once it's in... Um, you know, all software is being run by the operating system on pretty much even basis. Now we're, I'm about to talk about something that changes that a little bit called app locker, which is another really good improvement in windows. But, but again, this notion of, you know, before and after and the, and the value of user account control is that it, it helps with notifications, I really think Windows Seven is an improvement because it's going to be a, it's going to be in your face a lot less. It's been people that have incorrectly criticized what Windows Seven has done to user account control say that Microsoft has neutered it. They've turned it essentially off or down to a point where it's not nearly as useful, and that's a complete misunderstanding of the changes that have been made. Microsoft has basically this is you know rev two of user account control. It's much quieter. It's much saner in terms of as we said, lots of little things aren't going to be in your face. You can go weeks at a time without ever seeing any UAC pop-ups. When you get them, you're not getting a flurry of them, but you're getting one, and they're they're also containing more information. That's so good. I mean, I think All that's this good. is. Really a good, this is really a, a big improvement. The real problem, as you say, is, is user fatigue. Well, first of all, lack of information about the, what the pop-up means. And then this yep. user fatigue where they just go, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, because exactly. If it's coming up all the time and the thousand times they've given it permission, nothing bad happened. 
then they get trained right. into like, oh, this is just, you know, this is what I have to do now with this darn operating system. Right. I just say yes and get it over with. And of course, that's exactly what you don't want to do. So App Locker, APP as in Application Locker, App Locker is a another refinement to something that we've had for a long time, which was called Software Restriction Policies or SRP. This is something that unfortunately really upset users and really upset IT. The IT in the corporate environment, well, they wanted to bring software restriction policies into play because they wanted some control over what employees in a corporate setting were running on their workstations. The problem was the software restriction policies were based on a sort of a very low or non-granular security certificate, if it existed, and hashing of the EXE. Well, what that meant was any change of the security certificate because of, you know, well, the, the security certificate or the executable file as a consequence of, for example, updating completely broke the hashes. And the the program was no longer recognized as permitted just because you went from version, you know, 1.0.297 to 1.0.298. And so so it was a, a huge problem in for actual deployment and use because it was far too brittle. So what Microsoft did was thank goodness they made it smarter. Um, they actually call it, it the, the the information is is called SRP V2, which is stored in the registry as an XML format file um, off of a registry key. But they're now formally calling it AppLocker to sort of give it a more friendly name. What it allows IT to do is to create rules that are based on the um, cer- the certificate that comes with the application. So, for example, you're able to say, I want to trust all applications by this publisher, or I want to trust this publisher's application named this for all versions later than that. And so the beauty of that, given that applications are digitally signed, and we understand how signing processes and, and, and certificates work. I mean, they are bulletproof and robust and, and, and provable. Um, now, now using AppLocker, you have the, the m- sort of a, a much more working the way it should always have a uh, system for software restriction policies, allowing, allowing the corporate environment to say, you know, this is the set of software we want to run. And, this is going to be a robust rule set, even in the face of software being changed and, and updated. So, you know, this is, I expect that as a consequence, this will end up being much more feasible to use than it ever has been before. And the, as a consequence, it'll get used. Now, employees are going to be annoyed because they're not going to be able to install their own software and run them on corporate desktops. But you could argue that's a huge source of security problems. And in a corporate environment, the the company has a right to control 
you know, what runs on their desktop. Overall, though, this means more security, and that's a good thing. So it'll be even in the home versions. Yes, it, it is built into it, it's built into the kernel in a in a new uh, hmm. driver. It's called that's App, where it should be, isn't it? App, yeah. Yes, yeah. AppID.sys driver, uh, and it does kernel mode kernel mode rule checking uh, at process creation and DLL loading. It also is able to individually manage executables, scripts, instru- installers, and DLLs so that, you know, to provide corporate IT a lot of control. Um, I don't know that an end user would use this. Maybe really security conscious people would. It does have an audit only mode, which might be very interesting. That is to say, you're able to say audit, but don't enforce. And then you're able to look at your audit trail to see what has been run. And I know that sometimes I know I'm interested to know what's been going on. I I'm, I associate a sound in Windows when an application starts and one when it stops. You're, you know, an, uh, under the little sound applet in the control panel, you're able to create um, sound associations. Many of you know the, the the themes that Microsoft has bring a set of wave files for sound associations. Um, and I've always had something that sh- that I can hear when an app starts and when an app stops. And so sometimes I'll be working away and an app, you know, something will run. I was like, whoa, wait a minute. You know, that wasn't me. What was that? I'd like to know. And so this audit only mode that AppLocker now adds will allow you to look at essentially an audit trail of everything that's been going on in order to answer questions like that, which I think will be very useful from a security standpoint as well. Um, also, we now have um, the first client in Windows 7, which understands DNS security, um, sec- uh, security certificate records. We did, an, uh, uh, we did a podcast a while back on DNSSEC, as it's called, um, but it hasn't been natively um, enforced at the client end. And with Windows 7, we have that. So it will be able to validate DNSSEC signatures in the data returned from DNS lookups. Excellent. So now yes. everybody can go out and in- implement this. Yeah. Well, I mean, it it is it starts to be time to to get serious about this because this absolutely you know this allows intermediate DNS servers like ISP servers to accept the DNSSEC data and then to cache it. And then to make it available to clients, so it it solves the spoofability problem completely. You're no longer dependent upon, you know, just make you know you're no longer dependent upon the the ISP server not having been hacked or or having it you know set up in a secure way because the data itself carries its own validation, and so so you're you're able to with Windows Seven to make to say okay. I want to make sure that this is is safe, and no doubt, our the browsers will surface that information, you know, at the UI. So users will see, you know, in in a way that today we see when we've got an extended validation certificate, you know, and so the 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 URL bar turns green or something to say, you know, this is an extended, you know, an EV certificate, and we verified it, which is a nice thing to see. You can imagine at some future point saying we have. 
we verified the credentials of the DNS data that we just received so that we know this is the IP that that you think mm. you're going to. Mm. Excellent. Which is, you know, again, very cool. Yeah. And then I got a kick out of one thing that they added they, uh, in Windows 7. They call it Direct Connect. Um, I, I got a kick out of it because it's a feature that CryptoLink has always been able or always had planned and Microsoft uh, has added it to their VPN solution. The idea is that it makes VPN tunnels essentially uh, automatic so that whenever you connect to, you know, like your laptop, if you're out roaming around, it automatically and silently reconnects your VPN back to corporate headquarters so that your corporate assets are just always there. That's something that I had in my notes a long time ago for CryptoLink because it was, it's an obvious um, missing piece for just, you know, VPN ease of use. Um, and so they, Windows 7 adds that. And th- there's, of course, is still an IPsec and PPTP VPN. So you've got all the problems associated with, you know, in- inaccessibility uh, of the VPN in environments that are blocking VPNs deliberately. Um uh, but, you know, given that you've got a, a VPNable location, uh, Direct Connect will be nice in that it will allow you to sort of maintain a persistent connection back to home base. And I certainly think that's the future for uh, people who are roaming. Yeah, no kidding. And the last thing that I wanted to mention was Brian Krebs, who is who writes one of my favorite security columns for The Washington Post. He noted that in Windows 7, unfortunately... File extensions are still hidden. Ah, oh, it makes me so angry. I know. I, it's funny too because I mean, it's the it's one of the first things I have always done in Windows is when I'm setting up a new version of Windows is to turn that off yep. because because it is so prone to exploitation. You know, you know, Microsoft says, oh, but file, you know, the file extension, even if you can't see it, you can tell by the icon. Because extensions are associated with icons. So you can tell like when a file is a text file because it looks like the little notepad icon. The problem is that if you name something malware, well, you wouldn't call it malware. You would call it, you know, happyware. Happy. Good stuff for you. Good stuff for you. Dot text dot exe. Right. And only the dot exe is being hidden. Then what you see is happy stuff. Good for you. Dot text. Well, Xs carry icons with them. And so all that 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 malicious happy good stuff dot text dot exe file has to do is put the notepad icon in itself, and that's what the user sees. They see the notepad icon and they see the dot txt confirming that that's what it is, but in fact it's an exe with a hidden file extension. I mean it's just nuts. I, I don't. I don't think we're ever going to succeed in get Mike, Mike, getting Microsoft to change that. But you know, I, I appreciated that Brian said. Well, he was hoping maybe that users would uh, w- would get to see what the actual file type is. But nope, we're still not going to get that from Microsoft. Why do they do that? I just think they they're worried about confusing people. No, but it's, it doesn't. It's it's the opposite of confusing. It people. is. I mean, I want to see dot doc or dot PDF, and you know. Maybe, you know, I think Brian's right. In this day and age, people know about documents and about PDFs. They know they have to have a PDF reader, not some magical link between right. this un this unextensioned file. 
Yeah, they figured it out. Yeah. Uh, you know, and that's how it used to be in DOS. We had it. Yep. And we survived that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, it's, it really does make it hard to uh, to solve this. So overall, I'm bullish on Good. what has been done in Windows 7. I think I think they've they've done a lot for UAC. They they've 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 made BitLocker far more feasible and and useful and usable. Um, I mean, basically making it you know a, a, you know a, a, a pleasure to use and deploy. And they've allowed it to to um, uh, to work. In, in a useful fashion on fat devices to be backward compatible to XP and Vista um, and a group policy that will allow corporations to enforce that drives are removable drives are read only unless they carry encryption with them. So we ought to see, you know, much, you know, ultimately this will, this will take years to happen, but this is, you know, you got to start somewhere and these things always take years to happen. So we'll see, you know, five years from now, Problems with lost thumb drives containing, you know, the corporate records or all of the identity information for hundreds of thousands of medical records that that'll be at least it'll be encrypted. It won't be, you know, just sitting there, you know, for uh, anybody to pick up and and uh, and exploit. So these are really good changes. How about what is your sense overall of the code? You know, I mean, a lot of the problems that we have with Windows these days is because the code has exploits in it. Have they done anything to clean that up? I mean, it's still Vista, I think. It's well, it's yes, it's still Vista. And the problem is they're still human and security is still hard. Yeah. And so that's why no matter how good this looks, I'm waiting a year. Right. I mean, I'm in no hurry. to. I mean, none of this particularly affects me i mean it's like okay none of these things you know better you turn on extensions you don't need app locker uh you know you know how to do security with the and and i'm using truecrypt i'm using truecrypt on on, on my on my drive you don't have to you turn off auto run all of these things you've done anyway right and and frankly anybody listens to this podcast has done and most people who are sensitive to security have done yep so but but what we're talking about is making it i mean look if you're sensitive to security xp safe what we're talking yes. about is making it safe for the people Microsoft is selling hardest to, which yes. are novice computer users. People, I think, probably shouldn't be using Windows, but those are the people that Microsoft needs to make Windows secure for. Well, and these are the people who have Conficker running on their machines. Precisely. And and this, you know, none of our listeners probably do. So so this is for them, and we know that's good. We want them all to be more secure. Because it makes everything more secure. Right. Exactly. We all suffer uh, from the stuff that happens because novices aren't secure. Yep. Well, Steve, uh, that's reassuring. I'm excited. Uh, I I believe, you know, having now put Windows 7 on, on many machines, uh, that it really is a much better way. It's faster. It's lighter. It's cleaner in the UI. It seems to be, from the outside, more stable and secure. Um I'm I'm hopeful. You probably know from talking to Paul, and I haven't done the research. Um, what's the status on? Because we're not yet at at, at final. This is release um, candidate yeah. RTM, right? Um, and I do think I remember reading something about some changes to RC one. Where are we relative to upgrading from this beta seven install? I mean, I heard I heard you say you, you put should be using RC one now, which is uh, build seventy one hundred. That's and, the last officially is, released one. one. Once they finally release it, is the beta upgradable? Yeah. 
Okay. But you know what we what we say, what Paul's been saying, and you know I have to agree with him is clean install each time. Yep. Um, and yep. so that's kind of one of the drawbacks, and people should be aware of if they want to run this beta is uh, when the when the final version comes out, you're you're going to want to upgrade. Now I have to say for a beta, even the last beta, uh, very 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 re- robust and reliable. Well, again, because it's mostly just it's Vista. Vista. It's yeah. Vista with the knobs, you know, the rough spots polished <laughs> off. That's what it right. is. You know, a little tweaking here and there. And yeah, of course it's going to, it's going to, what's interesting, I find really interesting, this doesn't uh, uh, really address security, is it's much faster. So they, they clearly were able to tune Vista to get better performance out of it. Well, yes. And apparently there there is a technology also where it's much better about not bringing the kitchen sink of device yes. drivers yes. along with it. Which may be and why it's, it's more reliable. Yeah. It also uh, and faster, uh, and also at some point I'd love for you to address the uh, the virtualization capabilities because I think they've enhanced. They're really moving towards this hypervisor idea, yeah. Um, and uh, I think that's you know I mean they've already announced that that if you get Windows uh, Seven Ultimate or a Business uh, uh, whatever it is, it will clue, it include an XPVM. Right, right. And yep. I think we're moving towards really running in virtualization all the time. Which would be more secure, right? Yes. Hypervisor it, mode. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I can easily see the, the, the day where, where applications are actually in their own virtual machines, exactly. where everything is, you know, just, you know, where, where there's much more control. And again, from that vantage point, we'll look back at these Wild West days <laughs> with viruses jumping around and sending keystrokes to other applications and, and all this and think, wow, how did you guys even survive that? I hope you're right on that one. I do. Steve's at GRC.com. That's his home, the Gibson Research Corporation. You can go there yourself. And you'll find wonderful stuff. Spinrite, of course, the world's finest hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. That's a must-have. But there's a lot of free stuff, too, like Wismo and Shields Up, Shoot the Messenger, Decombobulator, and, of course, this, the Security Now forums. The security forums are there. Uh, if you have a question for Steve, we'll be doing questions next week. Uh, go to grc.com slash feedback, and you can leave a question or a comment or a suggestion. 16 kilobit versions of the show are there, as well as a full 64 kilobit full quality audio and transcripts too, so you can read along as uh, as Steve speaks. All at grc.com. Steve, have a great uh, week. Week, enjoy your uh, programming at Starbucks. <laughs> I think that's great. Are you getting close to the end? Um, yes. Um, it, it's funny. Um, I'm I'm now adding um. Uh, CSV, comma separated value export and import. Um, this is going to be a great little utility. I think it's going to really, it's going to be significant for us. And so I've just decided I'm, I'm actually doing a bunch of things more for it than I really need, but there it's technology, which will also be part of crypto link. So I figure, well, I might as well put that in, you know, get it developed now. It'll just make CryptoLink development go that much faster. So there, it's got a whole bunch of nice things uh, that we'll be talking about here as soon as I get it done. I can't wait. We're getting close. Thank you, Steve Gibson. We'll see you all next time on Security Now. Thanks, Leo. Security Now.